Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the invisible object of your perception. This is two people talking about stuff. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and uh, I've been getting a lot of mail. I've been getting a lot of email from listeners. So I figured I would start today's show by sharing some of it with you. Uh, the first message comes from a listener named Vladimir who writes, Dear Brad, I see that you don't accept voicemails from your podcast listeners. I know that a lot of podcasters love to receive voice comments. I'm wondering why you don't use voicemail for the Other People podcast. Is there something you don't like about it? Sincerely, Vladimir. So, thanks, Vladimir, for the good thought. Uh, I have nothing against voicemail. And actually, uh, I contemplated something along these lines a few months ago. If I recall correctly, I talked on the show about doing something involving voicemail and Skype, but it never really actualized. So I've decided to try something else. 
I decided to do a, a little experiment and I've located an option for listeners who might like to leave me a voicemail message. And uh, you can now do this via your computer, provided you have an internet connection and a semi-decent built-in microphone in your computer. Uh, and to do it, all you got to do is visit the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. You go there, you look over to the right, and you'll see a tab that says send voicemail. You can't miss it. It's on the right side of the website. You find that tab, you click it, and from there it's self-explanatory. Very simple. So, and oh, please note that uh, messages cannot be longer than 90 seconds for now. So whatever you need to say to me, you need to say it in 90 seconds or less. And uh, also, you, you do not have to leave your name. I have the settings configured so that you can leave me anonymous messages. Uh, it would be great if you left, at the very least, your first name. But if you're shy uh, or if you want to say something uh, mean and horrendously offensive, then you do have the option to hide. Okay, so we'll give that a shot. Thanks again, Vladimir, uh, for listening and for writing in. Go leave me a voicemail at otherpeoplepod.com. Okay, so the next, uh, the next piece of mail comes from a listener overseas, I believe in Denmark. I could be wrong. I want to say Copenhagen. He's written before. His name is Tarjay, and he writes, Dear Brad, the last couple of episodes have been great. I was listening to your talk with Peter Matei with whom you seemed especially comfortable, and I started to wonder, have you always been this, I don't know, hung up on celebrities? I realize that seems like an offensive question. In all honesty, it isn't meant that way. I just think it's sort of funny how whenever someone has gone to a fairly notable school, and uh, here I should interject that Peter Matei went to Yale, uh, whenever someone has gone to a fairly notable school, you try to get in a query regarding whether or not there were any celebrities in his or her class, Keep at it, though. I really enjoy it. Best, Tarjay. So, uh, mea culpa on this one. I, I think this is true. And I think uh, there are two reasons for it. First of all, I'm interested. You know, did you go to school with anyone who's done anything notable? That seems like a natural question, especially when someone uh, went to Yale Drama School. But the other uh, bigger part of it, for me, has to do with uh, my role as a host and my perception of what that entails. I'm just trying to serve as a surrogate for you guys, the listeners. That's what I'm supposed to do, as far as I understand it. And uh, I'm just trying to ask questions that I imagine you guys might be asking yourselves. So I don't want to fetishize celebrity, but I also don't want to ignore it uh, if it feels like a natural thing to ask or if it's somehow related to the topic of conversation. And, you know, p people like to hear about celebrities. They just do. And I want the show to be entertaining, and I want people to like listening to it. And, you know, hopefully I'm not overdoing it. So uh, thanks for listening, Tarjay. I appreciate it. And uh, I think you're in Copenhagen, right? Is my memory working? Uh, the next email comes from a listener named Danny who writes, Dear Brad, I listened to episode 200 tonight while returning home after a promising first date. 
It took those first, uh, those good first date feelings, the stomach churning and embarrassingly public grins and compounded them with the joy, inspiration and writerly hope your Susan Orlean interview brought to me. Needless to say, it was the best subway ride of my life. I've never emailed a podcast before, but I felt it necessary to inform you of two things. One, I have always found your voice very sexy. (laughs) That's right, you have, Danny. Uh, But I have been too scared to Google image search you out of fear that your physical appearance (laughs) would not match the increasingly attractive mystique I had crafted based on months of your pleasing baritone rumbling in my ears. I finally Google image searched you. I'm happy to see that you are, in fact, very sexy. Thank you, Danny. I'm blushing a little bit right now. Uh, And then number two, I'm going to be your guest on episode 500. If I'm extraordinarily lucky in life, it will be episode 400. Save this email so you can embarrass me. Uh, And then in parentheses, he writes, a well-known side effect of a good date is that you end up staying later than you intended, drinking more and more whiskey because the conversation doesn't want to end. An unforeseen side effect of a good date is that you go home and email a podcast. Anyway, keep up the spectacular work. Thanks, Danny. So uh, thank you, Danny. I appreciate it, and I'm glad your date went well. Though uh, I do have to say, if the date had gone really well, uh, it seems to, it seems to me that you would not have been riding home alone on the subway, listening to my podcast. <laughs> Am I right? Or you know, perhaps you're taking it slow, which is probably the wiser course of action. And uh, at any rate, I hope there I hope there was a date number two, and I hope that uh, you did not listen to my show at any point during the date. And then uh, last but not least, uh, I got a lot of feedback on episode 201, my conversation with Gregory Sherl, the author of Monogamy Songs. And what's interesting to me, I'm always interested when the feedback uh, swings wildly from one polarity to the next. And uh, the the feedback and the comments that I got on this one uh, followed that pattern. So here's a tweet from a woman whose handle is at Emily is reading. She says, I'm listening now. Oh my God, what a great interview. Shit gets real. Seriously, that might have been the most refreshingly honest interview I've ever heard. Bravo, guys. Uh, And then a listener named Asdrin. Asdrin. uh, Emailed me with uh, a more negative take. The message goes as follows. Dear Brad, congratulations on doing an entire one hour, 19 minute and eight second episode without spending a single minute actually talking about Gregory's book. Maybe the book is completely about a guy that suffers from OCD, but even if that was the case, then it can be said that nothing was talked about uh, relative to why this book is something that needs to be read. I just wanted you to know that spending an hour and 15 minutes listening Uh, about this listening to you guys talk about this poor suffering writer and how bad he has it really didn't impress me much and it felt like a massive waste of time perhaps you can focus more on the writing process or something in the future uh, if the case is that the story isn't worth talking about in itself i'm listening to this podcast not because it's a psychology podcast or an anthropology podcast but a writing podcast 
Thanks again for taking the time to read my comments. Asdrin. So uh, thanks, Asdrin, for listening and for sending word. Uh, This is something that needs to be addressed, I feel, definitively. Uh, you know, though I have, I feel like I've talked about this a million times. I want to, I want to talk about it once and for all in a clear way, both for my listeners and for my future guests. Uh, uh, this show, this podcast, it's about human beings who write stuff or uh, work in publishing in some capacity. And the emphasis is on human beings. It's about the human beings. It's not about the books. Uh, It can't be about the books. And the reason, or or the main reason, is simple. I don't have time to read the books. At least not all of them, and at least not with the, you know, the granular depth that they deserve, if that were going to be the focus. And uh, the reason I, I don't have time is because I do two shows a week, and I do everything. I do the interview, I produce the show, uh, I get sponsors, etc. And then on top of that, I have uh, like myriad other responsibilities, both professional and personal, uh, to deal with. So the show's format and its content are dictated by that. And the good news is I actually like it this way. Like, I I don't want to have two conversations a week, you know, about writing and the writing process. I don't want to talk literary theory. I would be terrible at that. I don't want to get into a granular discussion of plot synopsis because I feel like that excludes too many listeners, like 99% of whom haven't read the book at the time of the listen. Plus, it's hard to talk about that stuff in an interesting way. It can be done, but I don't know if I'm the guy to do it. I prefer to do the show the way that I do it, or at least in some, you know, in this general direction. And, you know, as far as like talking about writing and the writing process, yeah, I'm going to do some of that. And I do, I, I do it often, but you got to remember, I've done 200 episodes at this point, 202. And there's only so much that people can say about, you know, about writing. There's only so many different ways to skin the cat. And I feel like it would be incredibly boring for me to keep repeating myself. And if, if that were the case, then I, then I'd have to imagine that it would be boring for you. So I'm going to talk about writing with plenty of writers. And I think I did with Lindsay, if I recall correctly. Uh, but I'm just saying, uh, basically that there's not a set format. This show has a loose format. I don't do a lot of preparation because I can't do a lot of preparation. I don't have time. So, and I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to level with you guys. My goal is to have interesting, honest conversations with writerly people Sometimes we talk about books and writing. Sometimes we talk about family stuff. Sometimes it's mental illness, uh, other struggles, sex, drugs, whatever. Like all that I principally care about is that the conversations are honest. That's how I go into every single conversation. That's the goal. And my feeling is that if I'm honest and my guest is honest and we both try hard to communicate with one another honestly for an hour, then it's going to be a decent show or better. And yeah, some people are better talkers than others. That's just the nature of the beast. But in terms of general overview, that's the approach. And I hope that makes sense to you guys. You know, and you know, if I had greater resources, if I had a staff and production help and could really dig in and prepare 
and I, and I didn't have other responsibilities to deal with, it, maybe it would be a different story. That's not the case right now. And uh, again, to look on the, uh, the positive side, I like to think that the limitations that I'm working against uh, are actually uh, the source of interesting moments. You know, like when, when you're winging it in a conversation, uh, yeah, things, things can be loose. They can get off track. You can repeat yourself. You can forget things, uh, etc. But a lot of the time, this, this kind of spontaneity, you know, can lead to insightful and unexpected moments, which makes it fun for me as the host and hopefully makes it fun for you as the listener. So I hope that explains it. And I don't mean to rant. I'm just trying to make sure that I answer Asdren's question or comment, uh, with some degree of, uh, expansive clarity. And I want to make sure you guys understand where I'm coming from in terms of the show's format and why it is the way that it is. So, uh, thanks again, Asdren for writing. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. That is all for now in terms of mail. Uh, if you're out there and you'd like to write to me, the address is letters at other You can also tweet at me at other uh, and don't forget, you can now leave me voicemail messages from your computer simply by visiting otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. My guest today is Lindsay Hunter. Her new story collection, Don't Kiss Me, is now available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm really pleased to have her here on the program, and I hope you enjoy our talk. Here she is, folks. This is Lindsay Hunter, and her book, once again, is called Don't Kiss Me. I am in Chicago, Illinois, in a neighborhood called Old Irving Park, um, in the home that my husband and I purchased. Uh, about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, in my basement, um, which until recently was where I did most of my writing. Um, and then there was kind of a flood down here. Um, so it kind of smells. Um, though this also does double as like a mother-in-law suite. So uh, I pretend like it doesn't smell when we have to have people down here. <laughs> um, but I'm down here because I don't want the dog walker to um, disturb our conversation, though he probably will, because my dog, for some reason, when I'm home and the dog walker comes, she gets very scared. So okay, so and you have someone who comes that. and someone who comes and walks your dog. Yeah, Champ. His name is Champ. Um, he comes every day around noon or one because I usually am at the office. 
Um, I work from home Wednesday so I can actually do laundry, laundry, but I still have champ come because I, I have to be working. So, okay. Yeah, that's good. That's nice. I feel like that's responsible dog ownership, you know? Oh yeah. We, she's like my other child. So I want her to have a full rich life. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, um, Chicago, what part of town? Like you said, Irving park, my sister lives there. So I'm like, and I'm from the, Mid- yeah, the Midwest, but like what part of town is that? Yeah, it's Old Irving Park. It's a neighborhood on the northwest side. It's um, like three miles west of Wrigley. Like if you head west on Irving Park, um, three miles from Wrigley, you'll hit Old Irving Park. And it's this weird little like wedge um, in between like Addison, the highway, Pulaski, and Cicero, I think, or maybe Milwaukee. Um, and uh, and there's like it's a crazy mix because there's homes, there's very historic homes in the neighborhood that have, you know, that are like 150 years old and they're, the details are amazing and there's historic tours that come through to, you know, to look at these homes. And then people, um, then there's people who come in and demolish those homes and build big mansions on the, on the lots. Cause another thing about Old Irving Park that's unique in Chicago is that every lot is like extra long and extra wide. So you can have, a normal house with a huge backyard, or you can have an enormous house and no backyard, and people <laughs> tend to do the latter, unfortunately. Um, so our house was built in 1908, um, and and it's really cool that it's still standing because it's slanty in places, and <laughs> there's all sorts of weird jerry-rigged things that previous owners have done. And um, But yeah, we have a, a really huge backyard for Wanda, so pretty good. That's cool. And Wanda's the dog? Wanda's my dog, yeah. Oh, okay, and you have a child too. I was I was nervous that I was yeah. going to I was going to be like, "That's your dog," and you're like, "No, Wanda's my daughter." <laughs> <laughs> Wanda's my dog, and Parker is my son. He's going to be eight months September first. Oh, congratulations! So you're new, like new Thank mom. You. You're and you're just yes. kind of, you're about three months out of the weeds, where it's like like yes. like the Vietnam period of. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had so many people telling me all their different estimates. Like I had a friend say the first two weeks are the worst. And then another friend said the first six weeks are the worst. And my sister said, no, it's the first three months. And then, but for me, like the real turning point was six months. Um, not that I was miserable, um, but just in terms of, I, got, I came to a point of acceptance <laughs> where I was just like, I'm never going to know what the day's going to hold. Like I, He's a human being. He's unpredictable, and I just need to roll with it. And that came right when he turned six months, and 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 that was a real turning point for well, me. But and once uh, I start to sleep, I mean, a little bit, you know, like you, like uh, when, gee, yeah. When you can get <clears throat> that's hour. the thing, man. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say when you can get an eight hours like like stretch of sleep out of them, that's kind of the key. Good lord, yeah. He like at, starting at four weeks, he started sleeping. Like at four weeks, he slept six and a half hours one night, and I thought I could rule the world. Um, and pretty much after that, he started gaining steam and sleeping longer and longer stretches. So I feel like I'm pretty lucky in terms of that. But there are, there have been pockets like a week here, two weeks here, where he just like he just wakes up a lot, and it's like you don't know why it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It could be anything. His feet could be cold, you know. Um, and that's like that is just torturous if you, you know, if you. Don't just learn to let go and, and realize like anything could happen. Just accept. Yeah, exactly. Acceptance, um, adapting, adjustment—like that's that's the name of the game. Okay. But in addition to that, I mean, like he's—it's been amazing, you know. Like in all the ways that people always talk about it, it's it's just been amazing. It's, um, it's, for me, like, it's oh, sort, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's sort of funny whenever parents like start talking about, like, especially parents of young children start talking about the litany of inconveniences. 
that, uh, yeah. especially, I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers on here who have kids, but like it inevitably, inevitably turns to like the challenges of it. But then, especially because it's on the, it's on the record, you have to immediately rejoin by saying like, but it's the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> It's true. I really feel, and I think it's like maybe not especially me, but but because the the reason why I always make sure to say that it is really great and I do love him a lot is because like initially, like when he was first born, I descended into baby blues, and I like I didn't expect that. I because my whole pregnancy, I was blissful. Like I I laughed harder than I'd ever laughed in my life. I just was filled with happiness and joy. I loved being pregnant, and I just and I'm a very loving, nurturing person in general. Um, and so I never, I just assumed when he would come, I would be washed over, you know, with this bliss and, and, and love and, and knowledge that comes with being a mother. But I wasn't. Immediately I was like, what the fuck is going on? I, I don't want this. I don't, what did I do? Like, what happened? Like, I, it was just the emotions that overcame me were crippling. And I, and that, that only, I mean, that, that's a hormonal thing that happens to all mothers. I, was, I didn't know that. I uh, know. I was going to say that happened to my wife. Like, you know, yes. and it was like, it's a huge hormonal shift. You know, you go from like, yes. pregnancy to like having a person inside you to not having a person inside you. Like, right, exactly. And that person is now on the outside and not sleeping. And you don't know why, you know, you don't know what he needs. You don't know if it's okay to just let him lay in your lap for three hours. You know, like you're, you're like, am I failing him? Am I supposed to be engaging him? Am I, you know, like, does he know that I'm feeling these emotions, that I feel resentful of him, you know? Um, and uh, so I, I feel like, you know, I feel very guilty about that time in my life, which was only about two weeks. But I feel very, I feel like betrayed by myself and also that I kind of betrayed him because I wanted him so badly. We tried for a really long time. We finally had him. And the first thing I did was reject him, you know, <laughs> not that I wasn't feeding him or holding him or whatever, but you know, inside I was just devastated, devastated by it. Yeah. I remember saying like, I feel wounded by this. Well, um, a lot of women, I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't, and this is the thing about it is that there's like a lot of shame, I think associated with those feelings because it's so, uh, it works so counter to what you're told you're going to feel or what you think you're supposed to feel upon having a child. And so exactly. people don't talk about it. It's not something you like, you know, pipe up about at party, like dinner parties. <laughs> you like, oh, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, I like I read a mom blog, Deuce, and she had postpartum depression. So, like, I was like, okay, that's a possibility. And I remember telling my husband before Parker was born, like, hey, you know, I might not be aware of these things. So if you see these things happening, like, please, you know, feel free to tell me, like, you are acting strange, you need help or whatever. But I, but that's like a more severe form of baby blues. So I didn't know there was this twilight postpartum depression. And it's true that, you know, people don't really talk about it. It is sort of, I think the, the vogue of motherhood right now is to be this sort of like Madonna-esque, you know, there's all these like, and you see pictures on Facebook sort of reflecting that. And I know that I'm guilty of the same thing. I, I only put pictures on Facebook where my son, you know, where I look great, my son looks great, you know? But you don't put pictures on Facebook where you're sort of sitting on the couch, like slumped, <laughs> your hairs and a rat, you know. Um, <laughs> but I find that, like the way that I am in life, I can't help but tell people what I'm what I'm going through, and that's kind of how I've rolled, you know. Like since even as I was going through baby blues, I would tell everyone that was listening, like I I am breaking. It's <laughs> like I need, you know, I don't know what's happening, um, and and I think you know, I think it's more people talk about it. And I, and I reached out to people that I knew who had, who had babies and asked them, like, did you go through this? Like, and they were all like, yes, 
yes, I did. You know, it was really hard and actually it lasted, you know, seven months for me or whatever. Um, and that was really helpful because I knew, okay, this is just a normal thing. My body, you know, is doing something beyond me right now. Hopefully it will end. Um, but thankfully, you know, it, it's not that the fear and doubt and anxiety of being a parent ended, but <laughs> the crushing depression did, <laughs> which is nice. And did it, did, did, yeah. did it have any kind of, did you, I heard you use the word twilight earlier. Was it, um, did you find that your mood swung like when the sun went down or anything like that? Actually, um, my, you know, my mom stayed with me like the first two weeks, no, first week and a half that Parker, after he was born. And she was always saying, you know, oh, I just hated when the night would fall because I knew it would be such a long night. But for some reason, for me, I was like, yes, it's night. Okay. I'm going into battle. Like for some reason <laughs> I felt like I, okay, I, I, you know, I, I can, I, I looked forward to it in a weird way, even though the next day I was like miserable and exhausted in a way that I had never been in my life. For some reason, just like tending to him, having these like tasks that I needed to do in the nighttime, basically alone because my husband was working, you know, um, I think, I think it was just like, it helped, it helped me get through the night. Yeah. My wife, uh, or like most the, of the night. my wife would get like extra sad when the sun would go down. So I did all the nights for like the first six months. Whoa, yeah. good for you, man. Yeah, it was intense, but I liked it. You get to like it, and I had my schedule. I would ride at night, and then, um, you know, the baby would, you know, my daughter would wake up, and we had our little, like, routines. Like, she liked Michael Jackson music. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, like, I, could, I swear to God, she liked it. So I would put on, like, you know, Michael Jackson and rock her, and she would fall right asleep. It was funny. Oh. And she also, she also liked that song, that Rolling Stones song, uh, Waiting on a Friend. Because of like, oh my gosh! Like I think any kind of like high voice, you know, she responded to because babies, you know, they hear that kind of. Cooing. They can hear that, yes. So anyway, if there's any new parents, yeah, I just took a hearing test, like a like a random crappy YouTube hearing test, and apparently my hearing is um under like my hearing is for ages under fifty, but like I should I should be in the thirty to forty range, I guess, but maybe that's not really all that accurate <laughs> from YouTube video. <laughs> Wait, what? You 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 have? You, are you saying you have bad hearing or good hearing? That's what the YouTube video was inferring. Yeah, like there was some YouTube video that my husband sent me that like it was like, okay, if you can hear this, you are under fifty in terms of your hearing. If you can hear this, you're under forty. If you can hear this, you're under thirty. And I couldn't hear anything past under fifty. So um, I'm terrified. But again, that, yeah. it was a random YouTube video. So. <laughs> so okay, so like just to kind of like weave this back into a writerly vein. Um, with regard to uh, postpartum depression or the baby blues, uh, you know, I guess, it, I mean, it can happen to anyone, just like you said, because you talk to a million friends, and I think it's this big unspoken thing among a lot of women. But, um, writer, you know, the writerly profession tends to lend itself. Uh, I think a lot of people in, who get involved in it have a tendency toward the blues. You know, did you have any kind of you know, depre like depressive streak prior to having a child or is, has that ever factored into your work or do you, you know, does your work like uh, work against that? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Um, I, yeah, all my life, anytime there's big, been a big life change, I have descended into depression. Um, and I think it's cause I think it's cause I, I have like major anxiety and the way that I control that is to have these routines that I get into and these comfort zones that I really, treasure and protect and value and when those are disrupted in any way it feels like it just feels like the world is ending um it's like the ground so like, like the, I, ground, the ground under your feet just like gets pulled out from under you exactly and i you know like i have a lot going on in my life 
and um, and and the only way I can maintain that is if I if I have this core that you know this nurtured core, my home and my husband and my you know my son and all that you know and, and when anything kind of gets disrupted, it's like well I can't do anything, I can't deal with anything now, um, you know. So so yeah, I've always I've always had a hard time with change, um, and and. My, you know, ask anyone in my family, like, I'm the one who is just a huge homebody freak. I, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to hang out too often. I don't want to, you know, all this stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I just thought I had grown out of it, um, in ter- you know, in terms of descending into that kind of, kind of depression. Um, and maybe that's why it blindsided me after Parker was born. Um, but in general, like, I think I was talking to Alyssa Nutting about this about her issues with depression and anxiety and, and, uh, more, more than depression. I, I, like I said, I tend to have anxiety about everything and, you know, it, it'll keep me up at night and, um, and make me really fearful, um, about things. Like what, what, what do you, I mean, do you have specific like things that you're anxious about or could it just be anything? Basically, I've just always been the type of person that like fears not making every, every second count or fears not, um, like not being in the moment and being thankful and, and like recognizing these moments in my life. Like ever since I was a kid, I've been super nostalgic and super like um, reflective and, and like, Oh man, you know, I hope I enjoyed that while it was happening. You know, like, Oh man, I'm 13 and Christmas is over. I, I, I got to hold on to these memories, man. You know, like I've always been like that. And, um, and you know, I'll, I'll try to take a nap even these days and, and I won't be able to fall asleep because I'll be thinking like, Oh, you're wasting time, you're wasting your life. You're wait, you know, like you should be doing this or what's next or, um, so I don't know. I, and, and, and it'll, you know, manifest itself in, in things as small as like worrying about, um, superstitious things, you know, like, um, like as a child, I used to, um, my brain would play tricks on, on me by, by, screaming like I believe in the devil I love Satan <laughs> and um and and that would really freak me out because we were l- religious as I was growing up and and I thought oh my gosh that means I'm evil what religion um, but uh, well I was born Mormon and um but my parents after my brother was born so I was like three um we left the church because my mom's dad had started to do research into it and was like oh shit <laughs> you need to know this stuff and told my mom all about it. And to her credit, she was a lifelong Mormon, um, was like, told my dad, we need to leave the church. And my dad, who had only been a convert since he was 16, was like, no, I don't agree. And my mom took us from Utah to Minnesota and said, we're not coming back until you agree that um, we should leave the church. And so my dad was like, oh, okay, I'll start reading these things. And and then, yes, we left the church. And um, I guess the family lore is that we were excommunicated after that, but I don't know how true that is. Wow. And I still have family in the Mormon church and they're great. <laughs> they're wonderful people. Um, but yeah, so from there, then we, then we became Presbyterian and we would go to church every Sunday and um, we would have like family Bible study in the evenings sometimes, um, like once or twice a week, um, you know, praying before every meal, We would, you know, the whole thing. But my family kind of broke up as it was sort of, um, heading in that direction, my parents divorcing and my sister going down a, a weird path and me and my brother kind of like, what do we do? Um, the church sort of fell away. Um, so wait a minute, your parents, then, how old were you when your parents divorced? 15. Okay. And you, then you said your your, your sister, you have an older sister and a younger brother. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you said your sister went down a weird path. <laughs> yeah, she, um, yeah, she, 
dropped out of high school. She had a lot of, um, she was doing a lot of drugs, didn't really care about high school, which to me is like a normal teenagery thing. Um, dropped out of high school. My dad was very extreme in terms of discipline and kicked her out of the house. Um, she tried to kill herself a bunch of times. I don't know if she ever necessarily wanted to die so much as she wanted attention or it was a cry for help or it was a way to stall any sort of consequences of anything that she had done. Um, she was Baker acted, which is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically when you're um, put into a psychiatric facility against your um, will. And um, then we left her to be dealt with by the state. So she was like 18 homeless in the homeless shelter. And, um, but then through the state, she, she got her um, beautician's license and um, moved and then eventually moved in with my mom and she's been a beautician ever since. And she's like an awesome, you know, mom and, and wife and beautician and she's fine now, but um, it was a really scary time. Dude, you know what? Like I think about, cause I have a daughter, I mean, you have a son, but I, th- I think about adolescence and just like the craziness of it, the, in- yeah. the inherent craziness of it. And you know, whether it's that sort of thing or it's something else, you know, I think all of us can look back on it and be like, God, I'm, Lucky I got through it in some respects. And it's true. And I feel like a lot of the way that I dealt with it was I've got to fly under the radar. Like I would look at how my sister was handling things and how she was going through things. And I would think, man, if she just stayed off of dad's radar, she would be fine. You know, like if she just did these simple things. And I think that's how I handled it. But I think for her, like, and I, you know, I don't want to speak for her eventually. I think she'll probably write all this down. She's a good writer herself. Um, She, I think, adolescence was really hard for her because her body completely changed like of my siblings like I guess of me and her because we're the only girls she has the most womanly body you know like her boobs got really big and she she was really tall and um I think that was a huge and she and she also had been like had problems with acne and um my dad's never been shy about sort of pointing those things out to, to us and, and, and what I think he thinks is a joking way, but as a, you know, as a child, hearing that from your father can be pretty devastating. Um, so I can remember her like on my parents' ski machine, you know, like just like sweating bullets, trying to lose weight. And she was like 13 or 14. Oh. And I, you know, like no one ever said to her, like, you know, you're fine. Like you're, you're beautiful. You know, like no one ever said like, you don't need to do that. It was more like good for you, you know? She was on Jenny Craig as a teenager, you know, like I just feel like there was a lot for her, a lot of shock to her system, you know, and, um, and maybe it wasn't, it, and not maybe it was not handled the way that it should have been handled. And I, and I think she sought solace and, um, oblivion in some ways. Yeah, no, that's tough. I mean, I was talking, I think I, I think it was Heidi Julevitz. I was talking to her on this show, um, a while back and she was telling me, about her kids and like how her daughter was like four or five years old and was already like asking her questions about whether or not she was fat and like, or something like that. I think that was the the context, but it was like some beauty related thing. We were like, Oh my God, she's only like five years old or something like, you know, it's horrible. It's horrible. My sister's son, um, I guess he, he's, um, he's 10, but I think when he was like seven or eight, he, um, said to her, I'm just a fat kid in school. Ugh. And it's like, that is devastating. You know, he's hearing that from the other kids at school, you know, and she's, he's absolutely not hearing that from his mom or his dad. Cause my sister's great about all that stuff, but they hear it. They know it. It's, and, and I don't, I don't, you know, it's just, you just have to at home, I guess, 
sort of reinforce the positives and make sure that they, they feel loved at home, you know? And kids are just cruel, you know, like, and, and yeah, like exactly. sort of devastatingly honest or devastatingly, you know, and sometimes not so much honest or whatever. Sometimes they're just picking on someone and, you know, exaggerating something, but it's pretty ruthless. <laughs> it is. It's, it's incredibly ruthless. They just, the, the pack mentality and the, um, <clears throat> I was watching this, um, Ted talk, um, by a former NFL player, he was talking about what it, you know, how society teaches our children to be a man, um, and how if there's someone that's not, if there's a boy on the playground who's not acting like a man, who you know is playing with the girls or is holding some flowers or you know being effeminate in some way or just being weird, um, you know, the pack kind of goes over there and says, "Stop doing that," you know, "Be a man," like you should, you know, and it's just, it's 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 incredibly damaging. Well, I want to. There's something else that you said earlier um, regarding the your tendency to be nostalgic as a child that struck me, and I want to go back to it briefly because uh, it sparked something in my head. You know, I, I think like it's so often said that young people, you know, life passes them by. They don't appreciate the fact that they're young. They don't realize how great they have it or how fleeting things are. The heaviness and the uh, you know the existential dread hasn't fully descended upon their shoulders you know <laughs> right you know what i'm saying like it just hasn't yes. and and i always heard that and i remember like so many times like I, I can think in college i can think in high school like i was i was very much the same i had a i had a total awareness or not a total awareness but a very acute awareness that like time was passing me by my youth was leaving me you know these were good yes. things like and I remember having conversations with my friends in college, like, guys, we better live it up now. It's not going to get any easier than this. And, like, <laughs> we, were, we were exactly right. You know? <laughs> like, um, and so, I, you know what I'm saying? I think, there's like, I think that's kind of like an overstated thing that almost uh, approaches the level of myth. I find that, you know, you know, like people who are self, you know, have some degree of self-awareness at least often are very aware of, of those things. And it's, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I guess I would say like, I would hear, um, my mom say, you know, like anytime they would, my mom or my dad would say anything real about their lives. Like, especially if it was previous to meeting or having kids, I just held on to that. And so I remember my mom saying something like, well, you know, your father never wanted to be a banker. He wanted to be, um, I think it was a humanities press professor, but his dad was this, you know, um, hard-nosed Marine was like, no, that's not going to make you money. You need to go get some finance classes and be, and, and be a banker. And my dad was like, okay, that's what I'll do. And I always, and my mom was like, and he's always regretted it. And I just always remember being like, man, you know, like when it comes time for me to make those decisions in my life, I'm going to like stand there and really think about them. <laughs> and I'm going to really try to make the, the decision that I want to make. And that I think will make me happy because um, I think if you ask my dad now, and he's he just recently he's been doing a lot of soul searching. Um, he lives in the mountains in North Carolina, and he's going to a, a Unitarian church. Um, he was, I think, just recently he was telling me that he hated his job for 25 years and um, was miserable, and and that manifested itself in every aspect of his life. He drank too much. He was very angry. I was. We were all terrified of him. Um, he was in a marriage he didn't want to be in. You know, um, and so I, I think. I think I just always thought to myself, like, man, I'm, I have to make things count. I can't just kind of let time wash over me. Um, 
and I and I just that just really rung true in my ears and and the same thing goes for my mom like even now I'm obsessed with looking at her yearbooks and her scrapbook from when she was um, a child and a teenager um, and just thinking about who she was then and um, who she is now and um, and all that's happened in between and 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 I just I just obsess over that stuff and I I I I want I want to make it count <laughs> and I think. My mom's on the on the same sort of side of that spectrum as I am. She she every single second of her life is filled with something meaningful. Um, she never rests. She never stops. And I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that crazy about it. But but I just really I don't know. It's just really important to me. I never believed like there was going to be a period in my life that I that I would refer to as the glory days. I did not want that to be true. And so um, once I left high school, it was like, that was fun. What's next? You know, and in college, that was fun. What's next? I never, I never want to think, well, that was the best time in my life, you know? Right. right. And <clears throat> where, where did you go to college? I went one year to the, to Florida state. Um, I studied theater there and then I transferred to the university of central Florida and I changed my major for one semester to business because <laughs> for a second I was like, shit, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I should, like my dad, I should make money. Um, and I realized that was, that was horrible and I hated it. And so I, um, in between that semester and, um, and when I decided to finally focus on writing, I went to New York because I wanted to study acting, um, where they taught the method, which was what, um, Claire Danes and Al Pacino and, um, you know, all these famous actors studied, um, at the Louis Strasberg Theater Institute. I wanted to be an actress, and so um, I did that for a semester. And I and I realized I I didn't love it enough to be a waiter for 20 years waiting for something to happen. You know, right? What a lot of my classmates were, and they loved it, and they were great at it, and they were very passionate about it. And I was like, I'm a hack. I do not feel as passionate about it as they do. I want like a fast way in, and um, and. And I'm not going to get it, and I'm not even that good, and I don't really care about it that much. So I don't, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, so that's when I decided, <clears throat> you know, I've always written. Um, I really enjoy it. I, I was writing a lot when I was in New York, and I just thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to focus on this. And the rest is history. <laughs> and so, and so, did you stay in New York? No, I went back to uh, Orlando to finish my degree, to, to study writing at the University of Central Florida, and finish my degree and try to get my bearings again. Gotcha. And so, and then I, I have a question about your dad related to his job and his, you know, the unhappiness that he felt in his career as a banker. Uh, was he successful at it? Like financially? Like, did he do well? Very. He was. Okay. Yeah. He, he was very successful. And my dad is, um, man, he's a brilliant person. And, and I think because of that thing like that, that he hates, they still come easy to him. Um, and he, he one, one time told me, <clears throat> if I ever, if I ever want, to get the job done, I hire a lazy person because they see the quickest way to get it done and they do it and it's done. And he's, and I, I felt like he was saying something about himself in that moment and about how he approached approached his job because he was probably lazy at it, but he got stuff done. Um, when he retired as a um, senior vice president at a bank in, that, that was recently started in Florida, side that I think actually folded in, in the bad economy, but he was very successful, um, <clears throat> was able to retire relatively young, um, but yeah, he didn't, he wasn't a fan. 
Well, and I guess he was just talking about how all his performance reviews, he got he would get in trouble because he was so sarcastic all the time. And I think that's how he dealt with his anger at having to do a job he hated was he was just incredibly sarcastic to his superiors and people around him. That's so interesting. And, you know, and I think it's instructive, too. I mean... Because you do have to make often have to make sacrifices in uh, pursuit of the arts, whether you're living in New York as a and working as a waiter for 20 years, trying to make it on Broadway or in the in the movies or whatever, or you're a writer and you're trying to make some semblance of a living um, from your yeah. writing. You know, there's there's a lot of sacrifice, and and uh, I guess I'm talking here about financial sacrifice that often goes into it, and. You know, then on the other side of the ledger, you have people who ignore those impulses and are more "quote unquote" practical about their pursuits, and they wind up in a job and in, in, in a, a life, I guess, in some respects that they don't like. Uh, yeah. that, that makes them miserable, and yet there's financial success and like the, the you know the comfort that comes with it. And you know, those are interesting and difficult waters to navigate. Like I wonder. Like, if your dad could go back, would he rather take a different road? Or do you think that he looks at it and he's like, well, you know, it provided a good life for me and my family, and now I have a chance to reevaluate, and who knows? I think I think that's what he would say, because I think it's I, – I don't think um, – yeah, I don't think that he would go back and – maybe he would have – maybe he and my mom would have divorced a lot sooner than they did. <laughs> um, because after they left the Mormon church, they kind of looked at each other and said, well, we shouldn't even be married. <laughs> but then they decided to stay together um, miserable for the next decade um, or more. And <clears throat> But I don't know that he would ever come to a point where he would say, if I could go back, I, you know, I would I would study this instead. I would do this instead. Um, I don't I don't know, because I think he's trying to do that now. He's um, and I, and like even even looking back, you know, like he always he would always play the guitar. Um, he um, later, like after um, after I was out of college, he took up painting, um, and he's always been he's always been really into music and um, like he like I we grew up listening to the Ramones and Blondie and the Pretenders and the Talking Heads like all that stuff is like the soundtrack to my childhood because my dad was really really into into music and um, and and always trying to stay you know like aware of that stuff and I think that was his way of kind of you know scratching the itches he had um, without fully sort of like saying fuck this to the banking world and and trying to, to do something else. Um, but I, I don't know. That's a question that I'll definitely ask him because he's, he's really like looking at different things in his life right now and trying to figure them out. And, um, he tells me that he doesn't remember a lot of things cause he was drinking at the time. So, <clears throat> so yeah, so I don't know. I'll ask him, but I, I think he would say, you know, what the latter thing that you said, which was, you know, I, I, I provided, I did the best that I could given my circumstances and now, now I'm living the life that I want to live. Yeah, and you know, it's like it's kind of a it's a it's a losing proposition to play the the look you know looking back game. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't go back and yeah, time. yeah. So I it's mean, like, he would descend into the depths if he was like, I did all, I did all of it wrong. You know? Right, right. People make decisions. You make the best of it. There's positives and negatives, and you know, it's just it's it's hard. I mean, I think as a writer, you know, from the writerly perspective. Um, trying to put it together is very challenging, you know, uh, at least for yeah. me, at least for me, it is. I don't know if you've got it all figured out, but like trying to make it all, oh my gosh. all the pieces fit is difficult. <laughs> Brad. Okay. I like right, right currently now in the past, like 
month, I have been in full-on panic mode because um, my novel, which comes out next fall, <clears throat> is due completely, completely done. So, like, me and my editor will have gone through all our reviews and drafts and all that by the end of this year. And I haven't even sent her a finished draft yet. <laughs> and I I don't have time. And, and the reason why is because um, I have to work full-time because writing doesn't pay me as much as I need it to in order to even work part-time. Um, and so, and then on, in addition to that, I have this new person in my life. So any free time that I have, I want to spend with him. I don't want to waste that, you know? Um, but so I, I, it's just, I told my, I told myself, all right, by the end of this month, I'm going to send her, I'm going to send her the draft and that's it. We're going to get this going. And, um, and I don't know if that's going to happen, but, but yeah, so I, I do not have it figured out. Um, every day I live in terror and, um, (laughs) Feel like I'm feel like I'm failing in most, if not all, areas of my life. When I'm at work, I feel resentful of being at work, and I can't, I don't, I don't want to be there. I want to be doing things in my quote real life. I want to be writing. If I'm downstairs writing, um, and my husband and my son are upstairs doing something, or you know they've gone to to the store or something, I feel like I want to be with them. Right. Um, if I'm with my son, I'm thinking. Well, I'm just sitting here watching him playing. I could be writing, you know? So it's like I constantly, I'm constantly thinking I should be elsewhere doing something different. And I keep saying to myself, all right, well, when Parker turns one, he'll turn one January 1st, the book will be done and I'll be able to enjoy it fully. Like his birthday party will be awesome because I'll be able to fully focus on it. And I really hope that's true. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the challenge, right? I mean, it's like trying to be trying, I mean, not to sound too hokey, but it's trying to be wherever you are like fully and like, yes, you know, I, I get it though. Cause it's like, you, you, I, I sit down to work and then like in the, in the next room, I hear my daughter laughing and I'm like, God, I'm such an asshole, you know, or know. I'll be, I'll be at a coffee, I'll be at a coffee shop and my wife will be like texting me pictures of my daughter, like running around the park laughing. And I'll be like, I should be there. What am I, you know, it's, and, I know. and then I know. you're, and then you're there or you're sitting in the living room and you're like, I'm watching Elmo. Like why am you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I also feel like in order for an order, like I really want Parker to be proud of me. I, I like, I always thought my mom was the coolest, most beautiful person. And I still, to this day, just think she's the coolest, most beautiful person. Like she's, her story's amazing. But so I always want Parker to be proud of me and think that I'm cool and, and know that I'm like living a happy life that he can also live. And I know that a huge part of that is to be writing. And so it's like, well, I can't that, I can't give on that. And I also can't give on Parker. So, you know, it's it's just really hard. You just got to fight. And, and you said your mom's story is amazing. Like, is there something, like, super dynamic about it? Or do you just mean, like, she's just a cool chick who's persevered? Or Do you know what I'm saying? All of that, yeah. My mom, like, she just, like I said, like, every moment of her day is filled with something meaningful. She, like, she, wherever she is, she's there 100%. Um, she over the years, so, so she was the driving force in my family leaving the Mormon church, which looking back on it is incredible to me. I mean, she, like, she did not have a college degree at that moment because she left college. She left BYU to become a wife and mother, which women tend to do there. Um, but, and, and to even be open enough to, to listen to her, what her father was saying, you need to read these books. You need to understand that you should not be in that church. Um, to me is amazing. It just, it, it just sounds, it, she's just, 
so so anyway, so she she did that. Then to persevere through raising three kids with a man who didn't want to be there and was an alcoholic and still made our childhood really magical. And that is amazing to me. And then after they got divorced, she was devastated by it, but she never like, she never just sat and, and, and let it kind of, you know, overcome her. She immediately got involved. Like when we moved to an apartment, she got involved in the, in the neighbors there. And, you know, like she kind of had a new sort of like social life and, um, was really like just trying to live and, and, and make the most of it, even though she was inside really devastated. Um, she got her pilot's license. She also got her beautician's license. She went to college. She, she writes as well. She's over the years, she's written, um, a child's book, um, a, a memoir, a bunch of poems and stories. She just constantly like, she just amazes me and how alive she is and, and just, She's just so cool. She's strong. Yeah, she sounds like she's tough. You know, she made a. She she's made incredibly tough. Stuff. She's the oldest of six children, and um, and her parents, man, they they did some some crazy shit, and and she's just always been determined to be happy, and and to do you know to live the life that she wants to live, and and in so doing, she's incredibly loving and generous towards others in a way that is like, like almost pathological <laughs> wow. so i just i'm really i just really love her i've always just thought like there was like a aura around her like a halo around her just always been in awe of her i want to hang um, i want to hang so, with her i want to i want to hang with your mom uh, she's she's the coolest <laughs> she is the coolest oh that's great and so um to get back to like the right you know your uh, writing history uh you get out of undergrad that you did an mfa right yeah, I went to the the Art Institute of Chicago, um, Art Institute of Chicago. Okay, so like, what was like? How how smooth was your road to publication? You know, like what? Like how how long was your apprenticeship? How bad were you before you got good? You know, let's let's, <laughs> let's, let's hear those horror stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was bad. Um, I so after undergrad, I kind of hung around Orlando. I my. Um, boyfriend who's now my husband and I moved into a house with our dog and <clears throat> I was working at Barnes and Noble and then I eventually started working for his father who's a lawyer as a like an administrative assistant and I was just like you know like I could see my life continuing down that path and sort of just kind of starting a family and you know kind of floating along or I was like, or I can try to do this writing thing. And I remember, you know, trying to write a novel in one of those composition notebooks, like handwritten, you know, because that's what I thought the writer would do. <laughs> and um, just, you know, grasping, like not knowing where to begin, what to do, even if I was good at all. Because, you know, like I was writing poems before that where it was like a bloody fetus would appear, you know, like <laughs> I was writing some shit. And my my boyfriend's mom who's also a really great person was like, well, why doesn't she take grad classes at the, at UCF, you know? Um, and, and just, cause then she'll be around people writing and she can, you know, it'll just be a step. And so I Wait, started doing that. And was this in, this was in Florida or was this in Chicago? This is in Orlando. So I wasn't, okay. I was not going to be in an MFA program, but I could take night, night classes. Okay. Um, like a creative writing class or a po poetry class or whatever. So I started doing that. I did that for a couple semesters. 
And so I um, I studied with Jeannie Leiby, who's a um, writer who actually passed away a couple years ago. Um, but she's a really great writer. And she's the one who I always tell people, you know, I'm no good at plot. She's the one who told me I was no good at plot. <laughs> and so and that was years ago, and I don't know why I still hold on to that. But um, And so so that was that kind of got the ball rolling there. And then I, um, I, I got a postcard in the mail from the Art Institute of Chicago, like, hey, did you know we have a writing program? Come check us out. And I just kind of mentioned it offhanded to um, Ben, my, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband. And he told his mom, and his mom was like, well, I'll pay for you guys to go up there if you want to go check it out. And um, and I was like, holy shit, okay. <laughs> so I did, and I really liked it because they did make you choose um, a, a focus of writing. So they didn't make you say, I'm a poet, uh, or no, I just write fiction. They just, you know, they welcomed everyone. You could be writing whatever you could be writing you know, haiku on toilet paper, and they wouldn't care. Um, so I really, really was impressed by them. I applied, and I got in. Um, and Ben and I just took the next the next semester, moved up there um, in the summer of 2005, so that I could start in the fall of 2005, and and just packed up everything. I my whole family's in Florida, and I just left them and went went to Chicago. Which, looking back, I you know. Um, it was really hard and, and, and a monumental decision that I didn't realize was so monumental. I was going to say, um, though, like going back to the earlier earlier part of the conversation where you were talking about uh, depression and change, like was this a period where you felt like the ground was not under your feet or I guess you had your boyfriend with you and so you had some stability? Well, it was different because it was something that I was orchestrating. So it was, you know, um, it was like I'm I'm moving to Chicago um, and, and there were so many other weird things. Like, I knew that this was not going to be normal. Like, I knew my routine was not going to be, like, I wouldn't be coming home to my, you know, our house in Orlando and, and, you know, like, back then we used to run a lot and going out and running three to five miles and coming back and having dinner. And I was like, I don't know what to expect. So in that way, it, it kind of helped me not, not descend into that kind of depression because I knew it wasn't going to be normal and I knew it was going to be totally crazy. Um, but it, like when we shut the door to our house behind us as we left and, and I locked the door behind me and, and we were, you know, getting into the U-Haul, I wept. Like I just, I wept because um, for some reason I just knew in that, in that moment, like that I was really going to miss that. <laughs> but I, I, but I didn't realize how like leaving my family would be such a huge thing. You know, like now as, as a mother, I want to be around my family more and it's just, you know, it's just impossible. But um, but when we got to Chicago, we had hired a moving company, and I didn't realize that they don't move your stuff up until they can get other people who are also moving to that area to, um, you know, to move their stuff as well because they have those huge trucks, and if your stuff doesn't fill the truck, they're not going to send it up there because it's, it's a waste of money for them. Right. So we didn't have furniture. We didn't have anything for five weeks. Oh, my God. Oh my yeah. God. I don't know if you hear my dog. Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Um, yeah, so we didn't have furniture for five weeks. We slept on foam pads on the ground and, um, and, and that in itself was like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and I remember talking to my mom, I was standing in my empty apartment in Chicago and, um, and, and, and I was just saying to her, like, just describing to her, like, I have, there's nothing in our apartment. I, I don't, we don't have jobs, you know, like we don't know what we're doing. And my mom said, well, that means you did the right thing. And I thought about that over the years over and over again because um, cause 
sometimes I really, I'm like, okay, I know what she meant. And other times I'm like, what did she mean? And I think she just meant like, you did all this really hard stuff. You made all these sacrifices. You're standing in a very unideal situation because you want it so badly. So that must mean you're doing the right thing. Yeah. I think mom, listen to mom. Mom sounds like a, <laughs> yeah. a wise woman. <laughs> She's very wise. <laughs> She's always right. I hate it, but she is always right. So, okay. So then, um, did you develop, I mean, you developed as a writer while you were in graduate school. How long of a period of time, uh, had to pass in between your graduate work and when you first got yourself into print and your first book came out? Well, I, um, for the most part in grad school, I was working on a novel, um, and it was real shitty, and it was basically the same scene over and over and over again. And because um, I was learning what not to do, looking back, I was learning what not to do and, and learning what did not interest me. But it took me a long time. And my like my final year, maybe even final semester of grad school, I started just like throwing caution to the wind and, and writing what I wanted to write. And it, that was such a revelation to me because for so long I had been writing what I felt would go over well or what I felt you know, like the New Yorker would like, you know, um, because that to me was what a writer looked like. Again, I'm trying to play the part. I'm taking it till I'm making it. Um, and so I remember just thinking like, well, I'm just, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And I sat down and I wrote <clears throat> this story called my brother that ended up being the first story in daddy's. And, um, I just remember feeling like so much power from that experience because I really liked how it turned out as I was writing it, I was having a lot of fun and, um, it just felt like mine. Um, so what was different? So started, what, what was different? Like, cause let's drill down. That's an interesting moment where it yeah, feels like you really, yeah. I mean, I, I hate to use the cliched phrasing, but it's like you found your voice or you figured out something yeah. about how your creative process and, and how it works. Like what specifically was different about that one or was it, can you pinpoint it? Well, um, I think it was just like, like that moment I, it was something I had, I, w I had an assignment that I was supposed to write for class that day and I procrastinated until the morning of. So I sat at that desk. I had probably like an hour um, to sit there and write. And so I was like, shit, I don't have time to like think through in my head how this should go or like pre outline what a story should look like. I just need to like start typing. And so I started typing and the voice in like those first lines really it was a real thing. And I decided just to keep following that voice and to just keep writing what that voice was saying. And I know that sounds really cheesy and stupid, but that's kind of how it unfolded. It was just like, I'm going to keep staying true to this voice. I'm going to keep writing the next line, the next line, the next line. Um, and I think it was just a moment where I was like, like, I remember, um, and this is a roundabout way of explaining it, but I remember seeing Linda Berry um, talk not, not too long ago. And she was talking about when she was trying to write cruddy, she just had the hardest time like writing it. And, and she finally said to herself, well, how would I write it? <laughs> Which is such a weird thing to say, cause you are writing it. But she said, how would I write it? And she thought, well, I would paint it. And so she sat down and she painted it first. And then from there she wrote the words. And, and that's kind of the moment that I had was how would I write this? Okay. Well then write it that way, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and just paying attention to what I was excited by what I thought was fun. And then, and then later that day reading it aloud to my class and realizing that they also were excited by it was really meaningful for me. 
And um, I can remember my professor, Matthew Goolish, saying, pay attention to what you think is fun because that's what you should be writing. Like, writing should not be this painful slog and this torture. You should be having fun. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And I remember thinking, like, yeah, right. You know, like, I need to be, like, ripping my hair out. I need to be at the desk, you know, pouring my heart out. And I, I, I so understand what he means now. And, um, and I totally believe that. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like if, you're, terms of, if you're bored, oh, sorry, if, you're, if you're bored while you're writing it, that's a bad sign. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, no one's going to want to read that, man. Um, and, and I just didn't realize that. I thought it was like there were these staid templates that you must follow in terms of writing stories or novels. I didn't know what those templates were. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, if I did, I would probably, I would probably use them to this day. But I felt like that's what was happening and I needed to be following them and I wasn't. Um, and I wasn't following them. Um, but then I realized, you know, no, people are like the writers out there that you admire, they're doing the same shit. They're following what they think is fun. They're, 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 you know, following what they're passionate about. And, and, you know, but in terms of, I love the phrase, oh, like the phrase that occurs to me is like getting out of your own way, which I think is sort of funny. Like with, with whether, exactly. you, whether you're painting it, I mean, you know, but at the same time, you're like doing what you think is fun. You're still totally involved, but there's like this other you or this like, the ego you or like the, you know, right. And it's yours and it becomes yours. And then once you have that ownership and there's power in that because it's your thing, you know, like, and, and it's your voice and it's how you would tell that story. Like there's a million different ways to tell any of the stories that I, that I have in both my books from different points of view, like, or focusing on different details. There's a million different ways, but those are the way that I wrote those stories and those are mine. And that's my voice. Um, so that is that is what's meaningful to me and continues to be meaningful to me. Okay, and so how long did it take you to finish Daddy's from there? Like did you did it like did the rest of it just shoot out of you or was it a longer process? <laughs> um well, um I started writing stories. Well, so The Fence, which is a story in Daddy's um about a woman who uses a shock a dog collar um to shock herself sexually. I wrote that when I was still in school and that was my first Public, like real publication, I, and I got paid five hundred dollars for that. By whom? And so I was like, "This shit is awesome." Nerve. Okay. Um, and that never happened again. <laughs> but um, so so, but after school, um, after I graduated, I was like, um, knowing me and knowing um how procrastinating and, and lazy I am, if I don't do something that forces me to write, that constantly forces me to produce. I'm I'm going to let it fall away. And I, and I would see it happen to people that were graduated before me and people that were graduating in my class. It just kind of fell away. And I really, really didn't want that. And so um, I got together with my um, classmate and fellow writer, Mary Hamilton, and we decided to create a reading series called Quickies, um, and <clears throat> which was the idea was you had to read something complete, a complete um, piece of fiction, no poetry, no excerpts in five minutes or less. And Mary and I would also both read at those at every single reading. So that forced me at least once a month to create at least one story. And so from there, um, I met the Featherproof guys um, just through the reading series. And they would and, say to me, like, and you're, you're referring to Featherproof, the, the indie press, the Zach Dodson. Yes, who published Daddies. Right. And they would say to me, like, um, hey, write us a book, write us a book, write us a book. And I always thought, oh, they're so nice. They're just being polite. <laughs> and they finally had to say, no, write us a book. We seriously want to do a book with you. And so it was basically like collecting the stories that I had written for Quickies over, you know, over about two years. 
and um, and working through them with with Zach and Jonathan, um, cutting some of them out and um, doing minor edits. So I would say like after grad school, so I graduated. My final semester was the fall of 2007, and Daddy's was published September 2010. Um, and then Don't Kiss Me came out three years after that. So it's basically like, it takes me about two years to assemble a collection. And these are like super short collections, so <clears throat> it's, I guess it's no big shakes, but... Well, and then what, um, what about, uh, like, what about the, the jump from Featherproof to FSG? Like, how did you get to FSG? So after Daddy's came out, um, it's amazing how much the big houses pay attention to the indie presses. Um, they really want to find new voices, and, and if there's that already been that gate of the indie press sort of filtering out any you know any non talent, I guess, and they you know then they know like okay, I can look at these indie presses, and these books are probably going to be pretty good, or these writers going to be pretty interesting. So. You know, it's not just like a slush pile or anything. Um, but they, they really pay attention to the indie presses. And, like, the day Daddy's came out, I got an email from Harper. I got an email from an agent. Um, <clears throat> I um, Someone, Emily, um, Emily Bell from FSG, who's my editor now, um, got in touch with me very quickly after Daddy's came out. Um, and... So I always I was always in touch with um, Cal Morgan, who's at HarperCollins, and Emily Bell at FSG, kind of talking to them about what I was working on. And I always assumed that they wanted a novel, and I always assumed that's what my next book would be. Um, but over the years, I was writing more stories and um, <clears throat> tinkering on the novel. And so I realized in January of 2012. Um, oh, shit, I have a collection of the stories again. I want to put that together and see if I can get it published somewhere. And Zach had told me he would always, Zach at Featherproof had always told me he would he would publish my next book if I wanted him to, which would have been awesome. But I, I was like, I just want to see if anyone else will. So I sent it to Grey Wolf, and I vlogged about it. I said, you know, I had a dream that Grey Wolf accepted it, which means that the opposite will happen. And Emily Bell at FSG was like, why didn't you send that to me? And I, I just was honest, I was like, I didn't think you wanted a collection. I thought you wanted a novel. And she was like, no, send me your collection. And so it snowballed from there. She read my collection and she wanted to read part of my novel. And then they bought both of those. Um, so it kind of, <clears throat> you know, it's minimal. I guess, I, I guess putting myself out there paid off in spades. Yeah. I mean, you must've been over the moon. Yeah. FS, I mean, FSG is a great place to land. Like what, I, what was that moment? Like when you inked the deal with them for two books, were you, were you dancing? I was beside myself. I like I, I just it all felt like a dream. Like it all happened in like one week because I sent her my collection. She texted me over the weekend. I love it. We want it. And then like Monday, she was like, "Oh, people here also want to read part of your novel because we want to do a two book deal." And I just remember telling my friend at work, "Like, what? Like, I don't even know what do I do." <laughs> like, I was just shocked. Did you have an Did you have um, an agent? Then, did you have an agent, or did you just do this yourself? She, no, I didn't have. A, I did not have an agent at that at that moment. She helped me get my agent. She she's friends with Jim Rutman, and she had suggested a few others. She was like, you know, check all these people out, see who you like, meet with them. And I just <clears throat> I liked Jim a lot, and, and so we he became my agent. But I did all of it without an agent. Wow. Which is I think that might be kind of where it's going. But don't tell Jim I said that. But <laughs> in terms of like new writers coming up, like I don't know if you does because these editors are so like editors like Emily and Cal and. And, you know, all of them are really, like, aware and involved. And 
Um, you have to and, be. You have to be. And like, at least, I think like yeah, you know, yeah. t- like talking about like the function of the indie presses too is like it's almost like a farm system. Uh, and then you know, the, from, like from the perspective, the business perspective of the independent presses is that if you have a good eye for talent, you can get that first book or two, and then once the person can you know move up up the chain, you get paid more or whatever by a bigger house uh, with uh, you know broader reach. You know, then if they have this big explosive success, you still got their first two books. I think that's sort of right, the gambit exactly. by these independent presses, and I think, you know, any editor uh, worth his or her salt is wise to pay attention, especially to the ones that consistently turn out good books like Featherproof. I mean, like, yeah. they, they have good taste and good design, and I think, you know, people in publishing respond to that, and they're like looking down the chain, going, "Oh my God!" with with you know. Uh, far fewer resources. They're putting out product that we would be proud to put out, and you know that's a that's a testament yeah, to, the, to totally. the work to the work that they do. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's um, it's really true. I mean, like these like people like um, I always get this wrong. Short flight, long drive. Is that Hobart's Press? Yeah. Yeah. Their books. They are just their taste is impeccable. Featherproof. Their taste is impeccable. You know, like all. I just I can't think of a press where that puts out turds unless it's one that I've you know. Well, two dollar radio is another good one that I think has a lot of industry. God, yes. You know, industry cred and there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot and there's increasingly a lot. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like too broad because it, it's it's hard to publish. That's the thing too is that I think in this current environment the barrier to entry is low. And you know, like they always say, anybody can publish a book, but publishing well is not easy. It never has been yeah. at, any, at any level. So. You know, uh, I think that maybe there's not as much opportunity at the big houses, especially for literary fiction and literary nonfiction as there once was. Or, you know, there's a limited number of seats at the table. So there's a need for these independent presses to come in and fill that gap. Um, but it's it still remains a challenge to do it well, you know, both editorially yeah. from a design perspective. Obviously, the writer's got to be there uh, in top form. And I don't know. that That part of it excites me. And I just... You know, the, the, the question is, and I, you know, no one has an answer for it, but like, how, do, how does it, how does a writer break out? <laughs> you know, like, how do you, how do you wind up writing that book that gets, that, you know, catches fire and gets passed from person to person and really finds that readership? And that's the magic, yeah. the magic question. It is. I mean, um, um, from like I'm not I'm not saying that that's happened to me, but for me to get my book published, I just had to like for me my whole like writing career, even you know back when I decided to focus on writing, was a series of taking small steps and hoping you know that something would pan out. And I feel like if you take those small steps, like there's just it's just amazing how many opportunities become available. Like even a small step of you know. Um, saying yes to putting your story in your friend's literary magazine, you know, that has a readership of seven, you know, like it's just from there you meet someone else. And from that, you know, like it's, it's for me, like the path to publication was a series of small steps that, um, that I didn't know like where they would lead, but I, I had hopes and I tried to remain aware of, of opportunities and, and take advantage of them. But it is, it's, I think it's, I think it's it can be a crapshoot sometimes because for every me, there's a million people who are probably way better writers that don't have a book out, you know, or 
our self-publishing or, well, you, you got, know, are super frustrated. you got to get a little lucky or, or maybe even a lot lucky in life. Exactly. And yeah. I don't know. I've, I've had conversations on this show about that before. And I've, I have conversations about that in life. Not, uh, not too infrequently where, you know, it's not something that's comfortable to consider the idea that like you have to be lucky in life and that luck parcels itself out. Um, in inequitable fashion, you know, like some people are just really effing lucky and some people aren't, and there's not really much of an explanation for it. And, you know, I think then, then on the other side of the ledger, like, you know, there is such a thing as cause and effect. And you started that reading series, which introduced you to Zach and you're the, you know, you took action. And I think that, um, you know, the, like the, the way that I make sense of luck to myself is to go back to a, like, and I don't want to sound too precious, but there's a quote by uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson where he said, small men believe in luck and, you know, men of large souls believe in cause and effect. And I've mm-hmm. thought, I've thought a lot about that because I don't think it's as absolutist as it sounds where like, you know, a large souled person or somebody who's wise believes that everything is due to cause and effect. And if I've had good fortune or I've had success, it's due to the you know, the work that I've done and the effect that it's rendered or whatever. I just, I, I, my personal take on it is that, yeah, you believe in cause and effect and you operate as if cause and effect is the guiding principle, but you're also aware of the fact that it also, you know, that it requires luck, but you can't let that affect your behavior too much <laughs> Exactly. Or, yep. or, or paralyze you, you know? So you just have to kind of pretend that the world operates in a one for one way. Or, or, you know, in a cause and effect manner and hope for the best. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I know it's, it's, I wish, I wish, I wish it was different, but. <laughs> that seems to be the case. You know, it just seems to be the way things work. So uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you, you know, with regard to uh, your approach to life and this, uh, you know, the anxieties you have about not wanting to waste time and wanting to be productive and uh, having, you know, that, that part of your mother's personality in you. Uh, I'm curious to know how you work and and with respect to your job and with parenthood, like how do you find time to write? How regimented are you? Like, how do you do the work? I am not very regimented. Um, Well, I guess I am. I have to schedule time where I know I can sit and focus. Um, So like recently I just took a week off of work, took a week of vacation time so that I could sit at my desk and focus um, on my novel. And, um, that's kind of how I have to work these days. And when I know that, um, that I have that time, then, then, then I am, I am very, you know, regimented and focused on, um, on what I'm doing. But, um, I, in terms of like going to my desk every single day or, um, I, I don't do that, um, partially because I don't have the time, but also because I don't, I don't like to work that way. I don't like it to feel like, um, a chore or something I have to check off my list. Um, I want to go when I, when I have a story in me or, um, or, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I've never been the type to, to be sort of, you know, very, um, militant about it or, or, um, I don't know. I, that's just not how I roll. And what about, so, and, and, um, and it's no different for the novel. I mean, I can, under, I can understand with short fiction, Mm-hmm. That maybe you can, you know, this, these things are sort of like working on you subconsciously. And then, you know, you get to the point where you're ready and you sit down and you, you can crank out a, a draft or a good portion of a draft in a short amount of time. But like with a novel, which is a bigger, it's mm-hmm. just a longer haul. Like, do you find that you, that, that, that way of working is also applicable or is it a little different? Well, so yeah, I still, um, 
I still, well, so I have to schedule, I have to schedule time for the novel. Like I can't, um, it's like you said, with the, with a story, I can sit down, um, you know, in a few hours and I can write a story, but I have to know with the novel that I have, um, this swath of time that I can be focused on it in. Um, and I think that's why it's been especially hard lately. Um, you know, that now that I've gone back to work and I have son, um, to, to, find time to work on the novel because sitting down for an hour here, two hours there did nothing for me and, um, and discourages me. So, so that's why I have to schedule those like that week that I took off or last, you know, I I've taken a month off of work before and I have to know, okay, I've got this dedicated time to focus on it. Um, and so, so wait, so what is your day job? Do you have flexibility there? Is there, do you have some sort of job that you can take a month off? They so they let me take a, mar- a month of unpaid leave, which was awesome of them. I, I'm a, an instructional designer at an e-learning company in Chicago called Noggin Labs, um, and um, I took a week off um, a few weeks ago of my own vacation time, so that you know, obviously they let me do that. But they're they're pretty flexible. Um, like I said, they let me take that month off. Um, but you know, when things get busy at work, um, it's not as easy to take those large chunks of time off. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, the day job is a, is a hard thing, but, but, <laughs> yeah, but you, you seem to be getting work done and, uh, you're in a good spot at FSG and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I can, congr- yeah, I, yeah. I congratulate you on all of it. It's, it's an enviable course and, uh, you've got, you know, you've, there's a lot of excitement around your work. So I, ho- I hope you realize that and I'll be interested to see what you come up with next. Oh, well, thank you very much. All right, everybody, there you go. That's Lindsay Hunter. Her story collection, Don't Kiss Me, is now available from FSG. You can find her online at lindsayhunter.tumblr.com. She's on the Facebook. And you can follow her on Twitter, where her handle is at Lindsay Devon. That's D-E-V as in Victor, O-N as in Nancy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes are automatically uploaded to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done it already. The app itself is free. Okay. Uh, voicemail. The voicemail experiment. Is it going to work? Are people going to do it? I'm sort of nervous about it, to be honest with you. A, I'm worried that no one's going to leave me any messages. And B, what if people leave me like really hysteric, you know, hysterical, angry, vicious, hateful (laughs) messages? Then again, that could make for interesting uh, audio entertainment for you guys. Please remember that Christina Rossetti had a pet wombat and that Kafka had an uncle who was the director general of the Spanish railway system. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to Lindsay Hunter. Go get her book. Uh, I will be back in just a few days with another episode, another conversation. You know the drill. Uh, In the meantime, uh, leave me a voicemail. Just do it. Just try it out. Say something. Uh, You have 90 seconds to spill your guts. Ready? Go. (laughs) 